If you're not a CNN, you can be memory hold. Your entire history, your entire life's work can be memory hold and disappeared forever. Whereas these other companies can't ever do anything wrong. The same thing applies to, let's say, the people that brought us to the Iraq war based on lies suffered no consequences. And in fact, in a lot of cases, have a higher profile positions of power and authority now than they did before. It's important to understand the average person with no power messes up and you're finished once. The powerful can start wars and kill millions and be promoted. That's the incentive structure. Welcome back to The Breakdown, an everyday analysis breaking down the most important stories in Bitcoin, crypto, and beyond. This episode is sponsored by Bitstamp and Crypto.com. The Breakdown is produced and distributed by Coindesk. And now, here's your host, NLW. Welcome back to The Breakdown. It is Friday, July 10th, and today we have an extremely special episode. My guest, Michael Krieger, is the author of Liberty Blitzkrieg, one of the most sort of profound and long-running blogs about dissent, in some ways, of the modern monetary system. Yesterday, just before we recorded this podcast, Michael announced that he was going to discontinue writing on Liberty Blitzkrieg. It doesn't mean that he'll be gone from writing entirely, but he's moving on to a new domain, a new brand, a new story, and a new emphasis. And this conversation is about why, and it's much bigger than just one person shifting their focus. I think it has a lot to do and a lot to say about the state of outrage culture in America. Before we get into that, however, let's do the brief. First up on the brief, Hong Kong has closed its school. So what happened? The Hong Kong Education Bureau announced the suspension of all schools starting from Monday, and this is because of a local COVID-19 spike that included some parents and students. The closure, I think, reflects the sticky persistence of this virus as even places that did a great job with it are on high alert about letting it creep back in. Why the story matters, of course, is that this persistence of the virus is spooking markets. For months and months, both myself and guests have been saying that the only thing that really matters in the economy in some ways is what happens with the virus. Ryan Selkis from Masari called this the COVID fear index, which I thought was a great way to describe it. And we're seeing other impacts in the markets now of the persistence of this virus in the U.S. Treasury yields fell to their lowest level since the lockdowns began loosening, which means, in other words, that people are moving back to safety. So as it's been for months and months now, you simply can't have a conversation about the American economy and the global economy without asking what's happening with COVID-19. Next on the brief, Coinbase is exploring a U.S. exchange listing. Reuters reported yesterday that Coinbase has started the process for a domestic exchange listing. They're looking, it seems, at a direct listing rather than an IPO, but either way, this could come as early as this year or would almost certainly be next year. Why it's significant is a couple reasons. First, I think that there's probably some relationship to yesterday's brief conversation about the bonanza in corporate equities that we've seen. There's a huge demand to suck up stocks and to sell stocks to build resilience, and this could be part of that. 
But it's also significant because this would make Coinbase the first crypto exchange to go public in the US. So just another milestone in the maturation of the crypto industry. Third and finally on the brief, China selling off. For the last eight days, Chinese stocks have been on an absolute tear. And if you'll remember from a few days ago, this was driven in large part by Chinese state media saying, hey, you all should get into stocks and retail responding. Well, Chinese state funds have now started selling stocks. And this is a a sign to Chinese investors that the game may be coming to an end, at least right now. Now, even when we were talking about this a few days ago, people were worried that this sort of state prompting of people to get into the stock market might create a bubble like we saw in 2014-2015 in China that had some really painful uh, fallout on the other side. Chinese stocks have added a trillion dollars in value this week over this huge eight-day surge, up to a total of $9.5 trillion. Why this matters is two parts. The first is that part of the rally earlier in the week in global equities was driven in part by this Chinese rally, right? It was extended elsewhere. It showed confidence. It just had gave markets more faith that things might be turning around or getting better. It was also something that we talked about in the context of the potential spillover implications for the cryptocurrency industry. If Chinese investors are really successful, they might move some of their funds to those areas in crypto instead. The bigger thing, though, for me is that this is just one more demonstration of how fundamentally unfree markets are everywhere, right? You had Ray Dalio a couple weeks ago telling the U.S. that he didn't believe that U.S. markets were free anymore because of the way that the Fed intervenes in uh, with monetary policy. But this is an even more aggressive intervention in some ways because you have so much control over key pieces of the financial apparatus in China. And that theme of state control over the economy and its implications is a perfect segue to our main conversation. Michael Krieger is the author of Liberty Blitzkrieg. He spent a decade on Wall Street, and watching the failure of that system around the great financial crisis prompted him to make a major change. He started writing about what he saw as the corruption and fundamental failings of the system that he had been a part in, and those writings started to get picked up by Zero Hedge. This turned into a pretty prolific writing career that was sort of the red pill for a pretty big number of folks if you go out and ask them. Michael got into Bitcoin really early and found a lot of refuge in that community and the way that that community looked at the world. And this is a pretty special conversation because just yesterday before we recorded, Michael announced to the world that this would be his last post as Liberty Blitzkrieg. We go deep into why it was the right time for him to move to a different type of voice and a different type of writing, but the central piece of this has to do with outrage culture and the just the sweeping politicization of outrage and the manipulation of outrage that has become so endemic in our society. And the question that will underpin this conversation and really kind of what Michael does next is, I think, Can you fight outrage culture with more outrage, or do you simply have to opt out? So with that, let's dive into this interview. As always, it's been edited only really lightly, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, Michael, thank you so much for joining on what is a kind of a big day for you. Yep, Nathaniel, it is. It's completely coincidental too. You know, it's it's interesting because we put this date on the calendar. I think almost a while a ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I wasn't even planning on retiring Liberty Blitzkrieg 
at all this week. It, it was a, it was a last minute decision. I, I was it was in the you know it was in the back of my head um, as something that I knew was coming, but I didn't know when. And then finally, you know, as I was thinking about, well, what do I want to post about this week? You know, there were all sorts of topics I could post about that I know would have been popular and I probably could have done a good job about it, you know, related to current events and what's happening and the craziness and, and all that. But I, when, I, when it came down to sitting down to write about it, I didn't want to do it. You know, I, I just didn't want to write it. And, and I felt like that was a sign that it's, that this is, I'm done, you know, that for, for now with this kind of content on this particular medium, that chapter of my life is over. And, um, you know, as we've discussed off offline here, you know, there's, there's a new website that will be coming probably this fall. Um, and, uh, it's going to be much more expansive. It's going to be different, different topics. You know, I've written philosoph about, you know, philosophically many times on my site and I, and I naturally like doing that. So there'll be more of that and there'll be more gardening and there'll be more parenting and there'll be probably more about books and, and, and trying to tie all that stuff into, um, you know, the long game that we're going to have to play. Uh, you know, we're not going to change, you know, it's pretty, pretty obvious now we're not going to change this thing, um, in, in a, in a quick, easy manner. It's going to, it's going to probably take a very long time to truly turn around civilization. Um, but, um, and I'm going to provide some more different perspectives on that sort of thing. So yeah, it's a crazy day, but, um, I'm very, I'm very happy to be taking some time to reflect and get started on this next project. Well, so it's a, that's a hell of a thesis statement and a kind of a TLDR that I, I want to bring our listeners up to. And since this conversation is both an end and a beginning in some ways, uh, I, you know, you just today published what you have said might be your last ever post on Liberty Blitzkrieg, um, 325 pages of posts. I was just uh, reviewing. I went back to the the first one that I could click on, which is just an insane amount of content spread over a decade, right? And so so I thought that the only fitting place to start was how this began. This, I mean, it's interesting because this is, I think, a quintessentially internet era content project in that it was something that it seems to me, and it feels to me from from you know hearing you talk on other uh, other podcasts, other shows as well, that this was something you really had to do. You needed an outlet to talk about something that was uh, so big. So uh, let's talk about how this began. Yeah, sure. So, so yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned how many pages. I didn't even know that. So <laughs> thanks for letting yeah. me know. <laughs> yeah. I'm really bad at stuff like that. I mean, I think one of the things I might do in this time off is try to archive a little bit, put, put, sure. put in, you know, in, in some sort of organized manner so people can go back and look. So where did this all start? You know, I'm not going to go into the Wall Street, you know, stuff unless you want to later, you know, 10 years on Wall Street. I've discussed that, you know, many times on different podcasts before. Um, but for me, I was lucky in the sense that, uh, I was at a young age, I was making, I was very successful, you know, on Wall Street. I was doing very well in my career. I left, you know, at the top of my career, essentially, um, making a lot of money, young age, full of my, full of ego, full of myself. You know, I was a pretty ugly person in a lot of ways, actually, if you, if I look back upon it. And the crisis was kind of a gift to me. It was a gift and a curse, but it was a gift in the sense that it, it kind of knocked my ego down on the floor because when I saw the way that the Fed, you know, the central banks and government were rushing to protect my industry, right? The, 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 the industry that needed to be protected and coddled and saved financially the least, right? Mm -hmm. People making all this money for really no good reason. But let's be honest, you're not really adding much to, to society. Um, you know, that sort of hit my ego because I, I realized, you know, you know what? Sure, I'm good at this job. 
But the reason I'm making all this money is because the system is designed to enrich people that happen to be sitting in this seat. It's not that I'm so special. It's that I'm smart guy, right, who's sitting in a particular seat in a particular industry that's favored, you know, by empire, <laughs> by oligarchy. And so that actually freed me um, in a way because, the, the, you know, I felt like, okay, well, I know I can make money. You know, I know I can make money on Wall Street, you know, so it, it kind of lost the challenge at that point to me. It felt like, okay, I did that. You know, what's, what, what, what are my next five years going to look like? I'll, yeah, I'll be making a lot of money and I'll be here in New York and I'll be, you know, probably wanting to kill myself in five or 10 years right? because I'm still doing the same thing as soulless work. And so uh, it allowed me to, th- you know, contemplate and, and, and over time, you know, leave, you know, leave Wall Street and quit. And, uh, and I didn't know what I was going to do at all. I really had no clue. I, I was going to, I thought about a family office, you know, so I did start managing some of my own capital, which, you know, was an okay amount, but not a ton. Um, and I kept writing though, Okay, and so that's how I ended up with Liberty Blitzkrieg. So, where when I was at Sanford Bernstein on Wall Street, one of my primary roles was just to write write pieces, write macro pieces. I was a commodities analyst on the trading desk, so that gave me this sort of wide range to comment on all sorts of stuff because you know commodities is such a geopolitical and macro industry mm-hmm. um, that you're, you're you're thinking about regions all over the world. You're thinking about currency. You're thinking about all these things. So, you know. Um, I would write macro pieces and they were very popular, you know, around the street, biggest, biggest hedge funds, asset managers, they all read it. And, um, so I figured, you know, when I stopped, I figured I'll keep writing, you know, I'll just, what I'll do is I'll take my email list. Cause I had, you know, I had some contacts and I, you know, found out who wanted to keep hearing from me and I kept writing somehow that ended up on zero hedge one day in early 2010. And that was sort of the beginning of my public writing because then zero hedge started publishing my my articles frequently pretty much every one of them you know max kaiser uh discovered me through that we hooked up for an interview and then i figured okay you know this is sort of where the ball is is going for me you know this is sort of where where fate and destiny seems to be pushing me so let me continue along that path so from that point on i you know i i, I really just kept writing email blasts and they kept getting on zero hedge and i figured that was enough you know i didn't i didn't necessarily felt feel like i needed my own real estate on the internet until around some sometime in 2012 i can't remember the exact no was it tw- yeah i think it was early 2012 actually it's interesting that's the same year i um got into bitcoin but so in early 2012 i launched my own site liberty blitzkrieg it was really just a play on my name you know krieger is my last name which actually literally translates to warrior in german um and Krieg means war. So it's lightning war, basically. <laughs> Liberty lightning war. So, you know, some people actually don't like that name very much, but it's it's just a play on my name. So any so in any event, so that's when I started writing the website. And, you know, if you if you do, if somebody does look back at my posts, it's, it's changed a lot over that time. You know, in the beginning, I was I was posting every day, like two or three or four times a day, mm-hmm. right? It was sort of my first experience with a website. And so I really very much fell into a little bit of clickbait chasing. Right. You, you, you know, I like to see how many hits I could get or how many people would be reading my stuff. I got this dopamine hit from it. Sure. And, you know, I proceeded along that way for a few years, um, probably uh, till 2017, roughly, uh, with that sort of posting multiple times every day, going for that dopamine hit. I had ads on my site, you know, like Google ads, I had all sorts of ads. I was trying a lot of different things. And, and then around 2017, 
I started getting into this uh, topic, which I don't know if you've read my post on it, but it really was, this was the, the prior seminal moment to this one in my, in my life when I came across this thing called spiral dynamics. Um, which I wrote a five-part series on. And um, if you haven't checked it out, it'd be worth it. Uh, it's the Spiral Dynamics is essentially a theory on the evolution of consciousness and that there are, there are different levels of consciousness that humans can experience. And you can go back, you know, you can go up and down depending on circumstances or, 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 or a variety of things. But, but essentially, the, the science, some of the science behind this talks about a second tier consciousness where, you know, essentially humans fundamentally change in a very profound way. Anyway, reading about all this really provided a fundamental framework for what I was seeing and even reflecting on my own behavior. Uh, questioning myself, questioning what I was doing, how I was doing it, what my priorities were, and trying to essentially strive to be the more, con- you know, to, to, to emphasize the more conscious aspect of who I am. So around that time, I, I you know, I removed ads from the site. I, I went away from, you know, a lot of posts every day and, and, and clickbait and all that stuff and, and then really started writing once a week. And so anyway, my, my, my work has evolved even within Liberty Blitzkrieg. Um, but I feel now that I need an actual new space that more reflects the person that I am, the kind of lifestyle that I'm living now, the priorities I have, and also the kind of message that I want to convey going forward. Yeah, uh, there's so much that I want to explore because, uh, you know, as I was mentioning, I think there's a lot in this last post uh, in particular that is is super um, poignant in the context of of kind of the moment that we're living through. But keeping with this kind of bringing you up through the history, I know that a lot of people will be really interested in how you found your way to Bitcoin and where that fit with kind of the emerging consciousness you had at that time. Right. So I, I often say that you know, it was 2012 that I first um, got some Bitcoin, started accepting it, donations on my website, and 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 wrote my first post on it. So my first post on Bitcoin publicly was, I think it was August 2012. It wasn't August, it was September. And it, and it was about the WikiLeaks blockade um, that mm-hmm. the banks and PayPal had, had, you know, basically were trying to cut off funding, donation funding for WikiLeaks. And I read about how WikiLeaks was going around that by accepting Bitcoin donations. And Bitcoin is, I first heard of Bitcoin reading a, I believe it was in, it was either the new, I think it was the New Yorker actually in 2011. That was the first time I read it. And I remember when I read it, I was like, whoa, this is interesting, but I have no technology skills, right? Or knowledge or under, mm-hmm. understanding. So I couldn't tell, I couldn't make any sense of what was, what it was. And I didn't dig into it, but I was like, oh, this is interesting, but I have, I cannot, you know, I cannot reasonably conclude whether it's a fraud or or real or anything. So I put it on the back burner, but didn't forget about it. But once I saw a real world application, once I saw WikiLeaks, you know, which I had been following for many years um, and writing about surviving essentially through Bitcoin, that's when I knew, okay, well, this is, this, this is having a tangible impact um, on the world right now. Um, it's allowing speech. It's allowing journalism to continue in the face of threats by financial institutions, and that's when I realized, okay, this is this is something big. And at that point, I um, pulled aside my smartest technology friend, uh, and I said, okay, let's sit down, let's have a beer. You tell me all you know about Bitcoin and answer all my questions. And he did that, and after that, I felt okay. You know, this is the real deal. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna dive right in. 
And that's and that's how I came to Bitcoin. Now, you know, as I said to you before we started recording, a lot of people come to sort of how messed up our financial system is, our monetary system, and essentially the world by first jumping into Bitcoin and then exploring the other things. You know, I came at it a different way because I had already already known and and already had been writing about for years um, how how shady and criminal our our monetary and financial system is. And so when Bitcoin came around, it was sort of to me like, you know, Christmas morning, you know, oh, this is what I've been waiting for. You know, wow. You know, I can't believe it. I couldn't sleep for, for days after I, the, you know, you know, you, I'm sure anyone that's in Bitcoin knows what I'm talking about when I say the light bulb moment, you know, mm-hmm. that, that moment where it all clicks for you and you see the potency and revolutionary power of it for the first time. You know, when that happened to me, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't talk about anything else. Everyone that I would, would 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 listen to me, I would tell about Bitcoin. A very small amount of people did listen to me, um, but I couldn't do it. I couldn't think about anything else. But I was very happy because prior to that, I didn't see a way out that was um, productive. You know, I I, I thought I thought, okay, well, what are we going to do next? What are we just going to go back to a gold standard? Is it just going to collapse? Like, what are people going to use to transact? Um, that's outside of the system, outside of the state. Um, if the monetary system fails, et cetera, et cetera. But when Bitcoin was around, I said, okay, well, we have this now. You know, the, 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 we have it. We essentially have a lifeboat, and we have an alternative. And so, yeah, it was it was a profound moment. You know, again, this was a profound moment in my life. I think, you know, there are a few there are a few times, maybe once every ten years, that something comes along and just like blasts my brain into the stratosphere. And Bitcoin was was that for me over the last ten years. And um, you know, I wrote a lot about Bitcoin for a while. You know, I went to some conferences. Um, you know, I was er- pretty early on in, in the whole thing. And then, you know, and now it's just this huge ecosystem and community of smart, talented, um, decent people who are trying to push it forward. And I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not in it all day at all anymore. You know, I don't, I don't pay that close attention. Um, be, but I don't feel like I have to, you know, there's so many people doing it better than I could anyways. Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors. Trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. What's going on, guys? I'm excited to share that one of this month's breakdown sponsors is Crypto.com. Crypto.com offers one of the most cost-efficient ways to purchase crypto out there, as they've just waived the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. What's more, with Crypto.com's MCO Visa card, you can get up to 10% back on things like food and grocery shopping. When you buy gift cards with the Crypto.com app, you can get up to 20% back. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. 
hard to explain unless someone has really sat back and thought of it, just how historically anomalous, I mean, uh, unique, really, the idea of a non-sovereign, non-state money is, like a legitimate money system that operates outside of the framework of any one state. Uh, I mean, even, you know, you do have gold and precious metals and commodities that are not, uh, their their value isn't given or determined by the state, but they're part of a, of a state ecosystem, right? And the idea that something is truly outside that is uh, is, is pretty profound, especially for folks who, um, I mean, it's almost so profound that it's hard for people to wrap their heads around it first. So I imagine, I mean, I'm interested also in kind of, you know, you were talking in 2010, 2011, 2012 about a lot of the themes that have become, uh, the, let's say the Overton window on them has shifted pretty dramatically over the last couple of years, right? There's more mainstream discussion of them, uh, particularly with regard to the Fed, to central banks, to uh, the, the, the monetary policy that we have perpetuating wealth inequality. Was it like, I mean, well, one, I guess the question is, uh, was it like screaming alone on an island when you started? And two, was, uh, I mean, it must have been that that Bitcoin community was uh, probably something of a refuge. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that, that's a great question. And I actually don't like to think back too much on like the 20 years. <laughs> I, won't, I won't drag you too much through it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine because, you know, uh, you know, you move on. And everybody really that sort of, um, Oh, you know, believed in the system, let's say, and was good at it. You know, I was good at the system, right? I was a beneficiary of it. Um, and then, and then has that reckoning where they realize, wait a minute, you know, this, it's not good. You know, there's a lot here that, that I didn't look into because I was a beneficiary of it. Um, and that, you know, so that happened to me, um, right. Let's say the 20, let's say 29, 2009, 2012, before getting into Bitcoin period, it was almost like a two or two, two to three year period where I felt so alone. Exactly. I, I felt as if nobody understood, nobody wanted to hear it. Nobody cared. Um, but it was so important. And I was so sure that this was, in, this was crucial information, right? Cause I, you know, I had that history in finance. I, I knew, you know, I, I knew what I was talking about. Um, but it was very, yes, it was very isolated. And it was also, you know, I was one of those guys that you'd, I'd go out, you know, I'd have a beer at a bar or drink at a bar with people. And I just start talking about this stuff and people were just like, just mm-hmm. shut up. You know, <laughs> just, I don't want, I don't want to hear it. Nobody wanted to hear it. And, um, and so, yeah, it, absolutely. And, and not only that, right. Pre Bitcoin, not, not only were very few people aware discussing it. Um, it wasn't at the forefront of anyone's mind, central banking. It, j- it just was such a small community of people. And the people that were talking about it were basically the same people that had been talking about it since the 1970s and 80s, you know, like, mm-hmm. like older people that have, you know, <laughs> have been talking about gold for 30 years. So it was, yes, it was a very, it was a very isolating time. It was just a lot of gold people. And, um, you know, some of those people were great and some of them not so great, but, but, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't fun. It wasn't a fun crew. It wasn't a fun necessarily existence. Um, but so when Bitcoin came around, yeah, exactly. I mean, I just, it just, the, the world seemed like it, it could be brighter again. And it was absolutely a refuge and it was so much fun to dive into. And I knew, uh, you know, what, what also was um, encouraging about it to me was the fact that I knew, you know, Bitcoin had been in development. Right. I mean, it didn't just spring out of nowhere. You know, Satoshi had been working on it. It had built on other work that had been done previously. It made me feel encouraged also because, you know, I, I know that even though when things seem dark, like they did at that 2009, 2010, 2011, and, and they do again now, by the way, you know, I, I think, um, 
there, there, there's probably someone working on something in the background. There's, there's, there's something being, being tinkered with and that can come out and really change the world. And, you know, technology has always been a huge instrument for changing the world, whether it's the printing press or the wheel or Bitcoin, you know, the internet. And so, um, it gave me that optimism, you know, that, that things, things can change faster than you think stuff can emerge that you couldn't even conceive of before. And, um, and so, yeah, it was, you know, the, I, I found also when I went to my first Bitcoin conference, it was, a I think it was a, was it a coin debt? No, it wasn't a coin. It was, it was something else. Gosh, I can't even remember now who it was. Um, but it was in 2013, I think. And, you know, listening to the speakers and engaging with the people that were there, it was so much different than a gold conference, you know, which I had gone mm-hmm. to also. It was just, it was, it was a younger crowd. It was a more energetic crowd. It was different. It felt optimistic. Um, and I really was attracted to that. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it was a, it was a big, it was a big change for me. And, and, and I'd been, you know, it sort of, it sort of just came out of nowhere to, to, to get me out of my, let's say, hole <laughs> that I was in. Yeah. I mean, listen, I think the, the, the great paradox of the modern age is the internet's power to, uh, to allow people to discover one another in communities that otherwise would have been, um, extremely isolated and isolating, uh, while also then flip side is it can often turn them into antagonistic tribal forces against one another, you know? Uh, but it is a powerful force for helping kind of the Isle of Misfit toys come together and actually exert energy and force upon the world, which I think can often be a really positive thing. Um, but I, I want to ask kind of, you know, as you reflect on Liberty Blitzkrieg and, you know, part of the reason to, to kind of uh, hang up the, 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 the saddle right now is that you've come back to the same themes over and over, right? You were kind of a canary in a coal mine that just kept squawking, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, there are far more people who I think are getting the message today, but you found yourself kind of having to come back to the same themes because it's still too few, I think, and we can probably agree on that. But when you think, when people think about uh, Liberty Blitzkrieg and the the output that you've had over the last, you know, decade, what are kind of maybe the three big ideas, or it doesn't have to be three, it's totally arbitrary, but recurring themes that you think people would most associate with with you and with the blog? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a few, you know, I, I've had several core issues to, to my writing. Um, I'll probably name four and they're interlocking, of course, you know, and interrelated, sure. um, you know, and, and, and they're, and they remain core issues. I mean, and that's part of the frustration, Nathaniel, is because, right. I mean, these, these four issues that I consider existential, right. Mm-hmm. Truly fundamental to um, a better civilization. I'm still writing about them. <laughs> and, and it's, mm-hmm. and, and it's gotten worse on almost all of them. Actually, I would say all of them. It's gotten, it's getting worse. It's gotten worse despite, right. Despite all of my efforts and that's okay, but it, it does just get tiresome at some point because, you know, if I've explained my views on central banking, um, you know, 17 times, why, why do I want to do it again? Do I want to do it again? Do I want to write that post again? I, I don't want to write that post again, you know? So some of the core issues. First, civil liberties, okay? So let's, w- w- within that, we can, we can focus on the Constitution, the Bill of Rights of the, of the United States, something that I, um, you know, profoundly think was a ge- were genius concepts for us. Um, in particular, uh, in the beginning of my writing, the Fourth Amendment was 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 a big concern and continues to be, of course, which is privacy, right? Search and seizure, and the way that um, our government um, was intentionally 
spying on us. Um, and before Snowden came out, I was writing about that, right? Because it was pretty obvious it was happening. Um, and then when Snowden came out, people just had to kind of admit it. But, but you know, that was an early theme for me. Um, you know, free speech, um, right to protest. Um, that's obviously, you know, it's the most important of all of our civil liberties. And now you see that one being incre- increasingly under, under fire uh, and under attack, which is very depressing um, and, and concerning. Um, and, and, you know, you've seen that, you're seeing that happen in a lot of ways. Of course, the, te- the, the social media giants was very duplicitous what they did. You know, I'm not saying it was originally planned this way, but for, let's say, Twitter to emerge and say, you know, this is a platform for everyone essentially to, to speak and then to just narrow that, like you said, the Overton window to just over time, just narrow and narrow and narrow who can speak and what they can say and all this stuff after everyone joined, you know, after the whole world built their platforms there, I think is deeply, deeply unethical. Um, and you see that though in YouTube, Google, Facebook, it's happening to all of them, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's a very huge problem. Um, so, you know, civil liberties uh, is, is core to me. Um, just one of the things that made the country, uh, you know, a beacon, right, for 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 so many decades. Um, the other would be, you know, financial feudalism, which I've written about. Uh, you know, the the debt feudalism, how debt is used as a weapon against people with no resources, and is used uh, again, right, against them with no resource, and then used as, as an offensive weapon by people that do have a lot of money, um, like financial oligarchs and hedge fund managers, etc. Uh, into that goes central banking, of course. I mean, I, I don't need to review why that's important, but, um, you know, of course, you know, so central banking, economic, um, essentially the rigged economic system and central banking, civil liberties. Uh, the other would be um, empire and and endless war, militarism. You know, this is this is one that goes back to the very beginning for me because I found and still find that a lot of Americans are, are quite ignorant as far as what their country actually is, you know, they, 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 there's the stuff you learn in the school books and then there's the reality. And the reality is that the U S is a global hegemon has been a global empire. And what I try to do for people is not just say, okay, well, is first of all, is empire ethical? Is the empire, is the U S empire ethical? Um, or is it ever ethical? Right. But, but beyond that, I, I like to argue and I, and I do argue all the time that empire is, uh, pernicious and negative force for the for the for the average person. Okay, so there's a small segment of people that benefit from you know the the plundering overseas. Okay, whether it's defense contractors or Wall Street, um, the, you know the, there there are there's a small group of people that are fantastically rich and powerful because of that. Right? The people that essentially make the decisions that matter in this country. Everyone else, though, it's bad for. You know, it's it's what's led to offshoring. It's it's what's led to spending trillions and trillions of dollars overseas while our own infrastructure fails at home. It's it's what the dollar, right? You know, I think the USD reserve currency is a huge albatross around around the neck of of the middle class in this country, precisely because it it allows you know us to be um, lazy. You know, we can just print the world's money and and get resources and and essentially not have to have a functioning economy because because we are the, because we are the reserve currency. So, empire and geopolitics um, and how it hurts the average American, including played a huge role in decimating the middle class, has been another uh, core issue of mine. And then you know you know Bitcoin, of course, has been important to me. Um, things like that. I, I've written a lot about um, how Bitcoin is you know sort of a teacher. 
it's not just the end all be all there's there's all sorts of lessons from it so for example you know when it comes to social media or speech platforms the bitcoin model is the one that makes sense right there's just it's this permissionless just like you can send bitcoin permissionlessly from one address to another you should be able to speak you know permissionlessly on a platform and um i don't know how we're going to get there though that's a real problem see i think the value of twitter is that it did have this huge um, diverse group of people globally talking. And by eliminating certain types of people or coming from a certain way, or even people that talk in a kind of language that the executives at Twitter don't like, you're, you're reducing the, the actual value of, of the conversation and you're going to end up siloing people. In, in, and I think that's actually going to be pretty dangerous. So uh, let's let's hang on that point for just a minute because I think it's so important now because I don't know that uh, – and you are kind of just saying this as well. I don't know exactly what the answer is and it seems to me that part uh, – let me, let me put it differently. I don't know what the answer is outside executives who decide that they're not willing to – like it's still almost a centralized mandate for openness, right? That could be overturned through uh, – let's, let's say that – let's put it a different way. If Jack Dorsey decided that he was going to allow everything to go, right? It was going to be governed like uh, Bitcoin. Bitcoin, which is a system he obviously likes. Then all of a sudden, uh, Carl Icahn or someone comes in and says they don't like that and they kick Dorsey out and they impose all these new uh, restrictions because they can't get advertisers to buy into something that's not a safe space, right? That is a, a possibility anytime you have a centralized platform. The problem, it seems in some ways, is that these companies that have grown to a size and a scale and an influence and an importance in our in our world, in our culture, in our society, that is totally totally unparalleled to companies from uh, even a generation ago are, I mean, in some ways they're more like public utilities, but they're not, they're still private companies. And I don't know how to reconcile those two facts. Yeah. So, okay. Well, that was an interesting point. So Nathaniel, so as an energy analyst, I did a little bit on utilities, right? You mentioned utilities. Mm -hmm. Utilities are private companies. Okay. I mean, they trade on stock exchanges. I mean, most of them, right. Uh, They, they pay dividends, they have profit and loss, but they're highly regulated because of because of the fact that they're utilities. They deliver uh, electricity and gas to to people, and you and you and you need to have you should have, and I agree with having um, stringent regulation there. So I agree with your point, um, except for the fact that I don't think being a private corporation means that um, they 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 always and in every instance should should just have this like free reign, particularly mm-hmm. if that right if that company's providing. A public service that is, as you mentioned, gets to a certain level of dominance as in, and is in the public interest. And so I am sympathetic to what you say, and I agree with it. I, I think that if it were me, I think that um, social media, okay, because we're in this new world where that's that's the public square, that's the internet's public square. You can't you can't deny it. And mm-hmm. and companies like Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter um, have achieved a certain level of dominance within within that space. And again, if you're going to have a public square, let's say for microblogging, like what Twitter is, um, I think winner takes all is a good thing, as I mentioned earlier, because of the fact that you do want people challenging each other that don't agree with right. each other. 
If you just have a MAGA, right, uh, Twitter, and then you have a, I mean, right? have you have have you messed around with all, all like all of these ones that like I I totally understand where they're coming from who are trying to kind of be a censorship resistant new Twitter, but they end up just being right. a clubhouse for people who are kicked out, which right. doesn't doesn't solve any of the problems when you when you zoom up a, a level, right? Right. Exactly. No. Exactly. I haven't played around with it because that was my assumption. Okay. Yeah, it's a correct, it's a correct assumption. <laughs> right. So, so, so the problem. So, so okay. So first, we have to say, do we? Is there value? Let's just take microblogging, right? Because me and you are both active on Twitter. Is there value to having um, a dominant microblogging platform where basically everyone wants to be on, or most people are on, with completely diverse viewpoints and talking about totally random things about, right? Um, is that valuable to society? Is it something we want? Okay. For me, I would say absolutely. You know, I think that's, that's a huge part of, um, of, of bring, you know, allowing the best, the best sort of ideas or, or bad ideas to be challenged. Um, you know, sorting things out, I think over time, right. There's ugliness to it. There's stupidity, there's dangerous stuff to it too, but over time, yeah, I think that's, that's what we want. Okay. We don't want siloed different, a million different social media platforms. At least I don't. So if we do want that, then we're accepting monopoly, more or less. Right? We're accepting that there's going to be a dominant player. They're going to have some sort of a monopoly. Um, okay, so if we accept that and we allow that player to be a private company, which I'm okay with, okay, I'm okay with it, that that company, who, whatever it is, and in this case it is Twitter, in my view, should be hot, heavily regulated. but But not in a way... But, it, but again, you can – a lot of people probably listening to this will hear regulation. Like, oh, I hate regulation. Regulation is always terrible. Of course, it's not always terrible, right? I mean, if it's done properly and actually in the interests of the public, it isn't tyranny. It isn't it, – right? It isn't communism. And, and the example is clear. So is Twitter more free for, let's say, the United States? Is Twitter a more free platform? Is it a more liberating platform? Is it a better platform if – it is regulated to follow the First Amendment, right? Like First Amendment law is remains very good. Okay, there's no First Amendment law on the internet. Right? I mean, on these platforms. But 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 in practice, we still have that on the books. Um, so that is a extraordinarily um, liberty uh, minded thing. The, the 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 latitude to which we have free speech in this country. And so applying that to Twitter, how is that? How is I mean? To make the argument that that is somehow tyrannical or too much government, to, for, the, for the government to say, no, 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 we want the most free speech possible in accordance with U.S. law and constitution um, applied to the monopoly platform for microblogging, I think that's completely reasonable. And in fact, I think it should be done because I think outside of, um, outside of like a totally decentralized uh, solution, which Mm-hmm. You know, we still haven't seen. And also, by the way, you get into problems with that too, with, you know, because there are things that are illegal and should be illegal that you you don't want, you know, going on on, you know, let's say, you know, child pornography or things like that. You don't right. want, right? That, that there's stuff, stuff, there's <laughs> stuff that's not protected by free speech, right? Yeah, exactly. But right, if it's totally decentralized, how do you, right? How do you manage that? Who manages it, et cetera? So I think... I think the I think the I think the option is staring us right in the face, and 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 I'm and I'm 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 annoyed with Dorsey and his team because it was such an obvious thing to do and he should have done it, right? If he had just said, "I'm an American, I'm 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 running an American company based in San Francisco, uh, I'm a believer in the in the in our Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and I have faith in the 
laws that govern free speech in this country in which my company is based, I am going to apply First Amendment law to the platform. If it's, if it's legal, it stays. If it's illegal, it's not. You have block functions, you have mute functions. Um, you know, and, and you also if, have our, our tyrannical algorithm, which is going to sort out a lot of this <laughs> for most people, right? Right. <laughs> so, so, so that's what he should have done. I mean, now it's, he's dug in too much and stuff, but I don't think it's going to happen. But think about how easy that would have been. That, that, the headache is over at that point. Okay? So, you, you know what I mean? Your terms and conditions are First Amendment. That's it. Yeah. Now, so it's interesting. I could think a couple of things that are interesting about it. One is I think that there's a lot of rich discussion to be had that really isn't had around how ideas of natural monopoly apply to tech network effects. And I think they're going to be really important because it's cute that we spend so much time on Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and content moderation when Amazon is just eating the entire economy full sale, right? And is literally replacing systematically every brand that's not an Amazon brand with a different named Amazon brand, right? When you talk about like the power of a company on on our future and on our destiny, Amazon continuously ranks as the highest trusted and all these sort of things and all this attention is on Zuckerberg and Facebook or whatever. While again, Bezos is just uh, slowly eating the whole economy. And so we're going to have to have the conversation about natural monopolies at some point because it's it's they're, they're exerting their will on us, whether we like it or not. So I think that that's a really good uh, a point or a salient point that you make that there is parallels in terms of utilities and how you navigate a public-private kind of thing. Uh, I think that the a second part, which uh, gets me to another discussion that I wanted to have with you, is the problem of the problem that when we have conversations that don't fit comfortably into one of the highly calcified party lines of the two mainstream parties in uh, in the American system, and the reason that I bring it up in this case, and you even kind of intimated this as you were talking about it, some people are going to hear regulation. You have in America, it's uh, the 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 right which has systematically gutted not hold aside even policy the narrative that government has any role to play in regulating companies, and now that there's time and they need it. And they're now the ones who are talking about sort of implementing free speech. It rings so hypocritical. But then on the other hand, you have the left, which has uh, is kind of uh, on a completely different tip as it relates to what it looks like to actually regulate things. And all you have is, you know, kind of Warren's plan to break big companies up and stuff, right? So you don't have, it's not like they're offering some clear alternative. And so what's left with is you're basically here trying to kind of paint some common sense point that doesn't really have a home anymore in the American political landscape. And this gets me to the question that I wanted to ask. Part of what I think is so interesting and so appealing about your writing to so many people is that it is uh, it is almost like existentially unable to toe any party line other than what makes sense through thoughtful consideration, right? And sometimes that's going to fit into uh, one of a, a bunch of different political perspectives. But that's really difficult in today's environment, particularly in the context of social media. Yeah, it's, I mean, you summed it up perfectly. And this is what, this is what I try to, uh, you know, the point I try to get across to people. I mean, look, we're, we are naturally tribal, right? I mean, it's sort of evolutionarily, that's, there's, there's that, there's that <laughs> in us. And sure. so I think that's used by power and by political parties to, um, they, they know that, right? They, there, there is a, oh, by the way, I'm going on a tangent a little here, but if you've never read- Tangents, do it. Um, <laughs> if you've never read Brave New World Revisited, Right, not Brave New World, which is a great book, but I'm saying Brave New World Revisited, which was written several, you know, I think maybe 20 years later by Huxley. It is so good. Um, go, go get it and read it right away. And the reason I say that is because what he does is he systematically goes into the propaganda techniques from 60 years ago. 
right, that they had then. Okay, what they were using, what they knew about human nature, right? What corporations knew, what the bureaucracy knew, what the national security state undoubtedly knew, right? Not just in the U.S., but globally, all these countries knew. And it just it shows you that if they knew that, if they were at that level of manipulation um, and understanding of the human psyche back then, believe me, they're like a hundred times more advanced now, and they have more technology now. So what happens is, you know, and this is the problem we have. Humans have, they're wired in a certain way, right? I mean, I do think I'm wired a little bit differently for whatever reason, but I still have, you know, a lot of those traits as well in me. I'm just more aware of them. Buttons that can be pushed, right? Emotions that can be inflamed. Um, you know, the tribalism that I mentioned before that's sort of inherently there as from, from evolution. Um, there, these buttons are just constantly pushed, you know? I see it every single day with, with how narratives are constructed and then people are, 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 you know, easily siloed into their little boxes again. Um, so that's what's going on, you know? And, and the problem is I can be out there writing and explaining, wait, wait a minute, you know, think this through, you know, don't be so, don't be so, don't be so crazy. Don't be so partisan. Like what, what do you, but it doesn't matter because, because if people are sort of easily programmed, if someone is, is easily programmed, they're easily programmed. And I think that a lot of people are simply easily programmed or programmed already. And so all that needs to be done is you got to push a button here, you got to push a button there, and you can sort of make masses of people act in a certain way. And that certain way is not to benefit the masses, it's to benefit the rulers. <laughs> and so that's where we're at. you know. And so, yes, uh, that's why what I'd like to say to people you know, I've never been a partisan person with politics. You know, I've never, you know, ne- never made sense to me to be, you know, the political parties or anything. But I didn't really know why until I got older and started thinking about it and understanding the issues. So that's why I, I always focus on the issues. And what I say to people is have principles, not political parties. Okay. So if, if, you, if there are certain things, take, take the big subjects, right? Civil liberties. Okay. Where do you stand? Why do you stand there? You don't have to agree with me. But you should on you should have you should be able to explain in a minute where you stand on civil liberties and why. Okay, you, the same thing should be with empire. You know, where do you stand on empire? You know, is it a good thing? Why is it a good thing? Do you support it? Should we be spending trillions overseas instead of trillions at home? You know, when the middle class has just been eviscerated. You know, that's how we should be having that discussion. But instead, it becomes purely partisan, right? And everything becomes you know. This guy who, you know, I like on television or with a blue check mark near his name is getting me all ramped up about this. So I'm going to hate that person in this party and I'm going to like, so that's the problem. And so I guess the, the, my, my advice and, you know, your listeners, I'm sure don't need to hear this, right? Because, and that's part of the problem, right? Like it's me and you talking to each other here, you know, we kind of get, mm-hmm. it, <laughs> you know, and your listeners are probably going to get it too, but you know, how do we reach the others? You know, that, that's the harder part. And that's sort of why I'm, I'm hanging up Liberty Blitzkrieg and trying a different approach because maybe I can reach other people through gardening. You know, maybe I can reach other people through, through parenting. I don't know. But, but, but it's, it's something I think about a lot. But the key thing is this. Listen, being part of a political party um, or being attached to a political party or believing in a political party um, makes you brain dead, makes you completely brain dead. The same thing happens for um, politicians. Attaching yourself to a politician um, makes you brain dead. Okay, it causes you to stop thinking because if you've decided this political party is good or this person is good, right? This is my savior. Then, even when they do stuff that conflicts with your principles, you're going to make excuses for it, 
right? I mean, and this is where like the whole, like, let's say QAnon, right, uh, works with some people. It's because whenever Trump does something that is counter to what he ran on, and by the way, on all the big issues, he pretty much does things that are counter to what he ran on, you know, Q comes in and says, it's the plan, right? It's just part of the plan. I, I remember they told me when I said, wait, he just appointed John Bolton, one of the craziest neocons ever. <laughs> like, Total seriously. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Frothing, frothing maniac of the highest degree. The guy hired him to be his national security advisor. I'm like, and you know what people told me? They said, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, right? Like as if it was this master plan, to, right? To, to, to get Bolton under control. And guess what? Now, now look at it. Did, did that, was that really what happened? Of course not. So, so this is your problem. The, the, or this is the problem for a lot of people is once you've gone in, right? Once you've decided this party is good, this person is good, you stop thinking, right? So my suggestion is, should be, and, I, and by the way, I've seen this happen to very smart people. You know, it's not just, it's not just morons, you know, this can happen to anybody because it's human nature. It's part of your ego. The moment that you've decided I'm in on this, right. And you've, let's say publicly stated I'm for Trump, right. I believe in Trump. He's good. Now hard it is to walk that back. It's very hard. Most people can't do it. And so you will make excuses for, for, for the person. It's sort of like, and this is one of the lessons I've learned being on wall street and investing, you know, it's like what they say, cut your losses, you know, because, Mm -hmm. because. And you got to just sort of do that in life in general. And, and gardening, you know, taught me the same thing. I just had to cut my losses on a tomato plant, right? Something that I had grown since since uh, April from a little baby seed. You know, it's in the it's in the garden. I see there's a disease. It hurt. It hurt, but I had to tear it out. You know, and that's part of life. And so for me, you got to focus on principles. And so I, I would ask everybody to say, okay, what are my principles? Okay, so for, the first thing you should do is sit down and on a piece of paper, say, what are my five biggest issues? You know, what do I care about the most? Because not everyone has to care about empire and central banking like I do, but I, I, I care about it and I try to get other people to care about it. But you don't have to care about it. But what do you care about? Okay, what are the top five things you care about? Okay, what's your position on those five things? Okay, great. So then if there's a politician that is checking some of those boxes and actually doing good work on them, you can say, good, I support your action on those issues. And when they deviate from it, you say, I don't support your action on those issues. You, you don't need to support a person. You should support policy and principles. And the world would be a lot saner place if we did that. It's interesting. There's a, there's almost two, two things underlying this. One is uh, a, uh, a conversation we don't have, which is exactly your point, which is kind of digging a layer underneath and asking like, what what policies make this party or this person deserve my affiliation, right? Where do they relate to me, not the other way around? How do I fit them into the box of what uh, is expected of this party affiliation? But then the second is, I think, even more pernicious in some ways, which is that we don't reward uh, we don't reward the wisdom that comes from having been wrong, learning more and founding out and making better decisions or having better opinions in the future. In fact, what we're doing is the exact opposite, which is punishing you for being wrong ever, right? And uh, and hyper magnifying that wrongness. And so to your point, I think that creates um, a, an incentive to just utterly double down on even the most absurd takes that don't reflect who you are, you know, uh, which is a really damaging thing. It's interesting you bring that up because it sort of goes to, um, I wrote about once how Twitter and social media is creating a caste system. And I talked about how there's nothing CNN could do to get banned. Nothing. 
Like they, they could do, they could do, they, they could do like the worst thing you could possibly imagine to someone publicly, like the institution, the heads of it, everything. And those, and that, that, that company will never be banned. Never, no matter what. And somebody like us, we make one mistake and we could be banned for life. Our entire years of content memory hold forever, right? It happened to Zero Hedge for a while. I mean, it was so unethical, right? That, that Zero Hedge had, whether you like them or not, whether you think, right, their Twitter is good or not, it doesn't matter. For, 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 that was history, right? You, you know, you like history, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Zero Hedge's tweets, right? Hundred, probably several hundred thousand tweets over the course of, let's say, 10 years was memory hold before. And so you couldn't, if you were a historian and you were trying to write about, let's say, Twitter and finance at this time, you couldn't even search Zero Hedge's old tweets. I mean, think about how insane that is. That is Orwell 1984. That is deeply, again, deeply, deeply unethical and bad for, for civilization. And so, you know, you know, people that are, are weak, let's say, are not part of the ruling class institutionally, um, if you're not a CNN, you can be memory hold. Your entire history, your entire life's work can be memory hold and disappeared forever. Whereas these other companies can't can't ever do anything wrong. The same thing applies to let's say Iraq War criminals. You know, the people that brought us to 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 the Iraq War based on lies suffered no consequences, and in fact, in a lot of cases, were have have a higher profile, positions of power and authority now than they did before. And so it's important to understand, this is very key, that the little guy or the, the average person with no power um, messes up and you're finished once. The powerful can start wars and kill millions and be promoted. That's the incentive structure. So it's, it's, it's even worse than, than sort of what you described. It's, it's, it's essentially a feudal system. It's, 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 we don't, we don't live in a rule of law society anymore. I'm sure you've, you're aware of, you know, sort of what happens when people get charged with crimes these days. They, 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 they pile on the charges so bad that you have to plea. Like you, you, most people don't even go to court to try to fight out their, their, their charges because if they do and they lose, they're basically, you know what I mean? They're facing decades in jail. So instead mm-hmm. they, they just, you know, a huge, I think it's like 90%. It's like a really high number. People just end up pleading and taking a lesser sentence and pleading guilty, even if they're not guilty to, to just avoid that risk. And I've seen that over and over. And so, yeah, we have a, we have a completely, again, Max Kaiser, you know, you know, coined this term. It's true. It's neo-feudal or it's financial, financial feudalism. This is the U S today is more akin to a feudal structure when push comes to shove, um, then, then most people realize. It's really fascinating. I think, uh, one of the, um, one of the things that's so interesting about the post that you wrote today and one of the pieces that I wanted to to come back to, and I kind of want to, maybe this is a good segue to when the cracks started to come in and how you started to kind of make this decision. But one of the lines was about this, right? You said the imperial oligarchy wants us fighting amongst each other, and it's a trivial task provided it triggers the culture war hysteria switch embedded in so many across the ideological spectrum. So clearly this is something that you think about a lot, right? That the, the way power stays in power is to either distract you or to get us engaged in conflict with one another. Right. So, you know, the, the topics that I discussed, right, that I, that I mentioned were core to my, uh, to my writing over the last decade, you know, think of, think about how often they're, they dominate the narrative. I mean, after what just happened with this, another crazy bailout where the feds now buying corporate bonds, right? High yield bonds, 
I mean, think about how little that was discussed. You know, think about the fact that did, did CNN um, or Fox, right? Did they come out and make that this giant issue? Like, wait a minute, this is a huge deal. The Fed is now buying corporate bonds. Um, it's never done that. You know, what, what the heck is going on? No, 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 you, you don't. There's there's no big discussion as, as far as, you know, war too. You know, there's never there's never a question about, you know, is this good? You know, is is American militarism good? Is the American empire good? Right. That's not that's not on the table. You know what I'm saying? So so like the biggest the biggest issues, the ones that I talk about the most are almost never discussed or promoted. But what media does like to do is pick somebody, right? Because you can always find crazy, right? You can always find bad or demented, just just like there's incredible, beautiful altruistic, selfless people, right? Some people like that. There's just crazy, terrible, evil, sociopathic people. And so what media likes to do is they like to take some random person, okay? Let's say holding up a MAGA sign or some random person, let's say holding up a Black Lives Matter sign and then pick the worst possible example from that group saying something crazy, right? Or mean, that, that nobody can believe, and then they and then they get outraged, and so you can you can get both sides outraged because then people start thinking, "Wow, look at look you know, right like so so the so the Trump people will, will see that Black Lives Matter right, and they'll say, "Oh my, these people look at this, they're all like this. The left needs to be destroyed," and then the left sees the you know the MAGA person saying something that could be let's say anti-Semitic or whatever, and and they'll say, "Oh, see, they're all like this. All these Trump people, they're all they're all they're all hateful. They're all bigots. They're all white supremacists. We got to get rid of them, right?" And so that's and then, and then so everyone's energy is focused on the fact that, oh my gosh, on the other side, there's these, there's this existential threat of this mob and they're going to take down the country. And, and then you don't focus on how power really functions. And, you know, as I alluded to, or more completely bluntly said in my piece, (laughs) this is not uh, an accident, right? I mean, if, if, if I was in power and I was a a psychopath, that's exactly what I would do. (laughs) It would be easy. And, you know, I've said this before, but one of the, one of the more depressing, right? There've been a lot of optimistic things I've, I've come across in the last 10 years, but, but probably the most depressing, um, realization that I have had. And, you know, there's undercurrents of that in, in the piece I wrote over the last 10 years is seeing how easily most people are manipulated, you know? And so if we're talking about, if we're living in a country where, there's 325 million people. And let's just say 35% of those are extremely uh, malleable, let's say, to narrative control or manipulation. Um, you're talking about 100 million people. And that's a lot. <laughs> so how, how do you overcome that? You know, how, what do you do about that? I, I don't know. You know, I tried using reason and doing shows like this to to get my points across. I'm really proud that I did that work and it's there, you know, if if maybe for the future <laughs> for people, maybe 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 20 years from now people will sort of see some wisdom there. But um but I don't have an answer other than um you know, I'm going to try to be a great parent, right? I'm going to try to be a great dad. I'm going to try to try to raise children who are, you know, decent, ethical, thinking, um creative curious people, adults, because I, I think we've really, 
we really messed up. You know, I mean, you look at, you know, like I can get mad. I can say, oh my God, look at all these people, you know, they don't get anything. But at the same time, like who knows what, what sort of education they had, what sort of upbringing they had. Like, did they have abusive parents? You know what I mean? Were they eating junk food their whole lives? The brains turned to mush. You know, there's a lot of things that, you know, I, I can be very uh, dismissive and critical and I often am, but if I want to be more conscious about it, you know, a lot of these people are actually victims. And I hate to say it, but in a lot of cases, there might not be a possibility to work with them. And so for me, I've got three little ones at home and my most important job by far um, over the next decade is caring for them and trying to put forth three little souls um, and be a good guide to them so that they can be stewards of a better civilization one day. Because it might, you know what I mean? Like we might, we, that might be our only hope is the little ones. And I, I not sure. Do you, do you have kids? I think you might. I have a, I have a 20 month old. Oh, congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. So yeah. So you're out of the worst right now, right? Like it's a little bit easier. She, she, uh, she has made it easy in a way that I know that we'll pay for in 13 years. (laughs) Um, she's, she's, I mean, she's extremely, uh, engaged and has opinions and things, but she's also, she has the gift of being able to make herself, uh, she's really good at communicating even when she doesn't have the words for things. And because of that, we haven't had the, some of the tantrums and stuff. So we got, we've gotten real lucky. I'm sure, uh, but, you know, if, if, or when we have a second one, uh, you know, we'll probably get punished then too, but <laughs> could be, but it, it could also be, you know, you, you may, you seem like a pretty calm guy. I mean, your wife might be pretty calm. You know, I, I think, I think to some degree, my kids have that kind of that, uh, that, that <laughs> I don't know how I would call it. Like I kind of iconoclasm or maybe, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, so restlessness that I, that I have, sure. um, but, sure. but, but that's good. But, but so, so, so being a father, I mean, you know what I'm saying, you know, Absolutely. That. And, um, and then, and then with, and then with gardening to a nature, you know, I, I'm a New York city person by birth. Um, I spent 28 years of my life in Manhattan and I left and moved to Colorado in December, 2010. It's about to be 10 years now. And, um, that was a huge change for me because nature, right. I didn't have growing up. I basically had no interaction with nature. And then being in the competitive world of Wall Street, New York, that's like hyper unnatural. You know what I mean? It's all this sort of esoteric um, finance and screens and stocks and currencies and commodities and human competition, um, money chasing, ego chasing, all that stuff. And you're so disconnected from the natural world that once I came out here and moved out here and started hiking almost every day at first, and interacting with nature on a daily basis, I realized, and this is one of the things I'm probably going to be writing about more when I start writing, is I think that the the the, the broken link, right? Because human beings, for most of our, um, for most of the thousands and thousands or, or whatever, hundreds of thousands, millions, I don't know, years, the human, the homo sapiens have been around, we were so deeply connected to the natural world. You know, it was, it was, mm-hmm. It was it was such a part of who we who we are, where we come from. And I think that breaking that link, and for a lot of people, the link is broken, particularly if you live in a big city or an apartment. The link, the human link to the natural world, I think is the root of a lot of our problems. And I think that if more people went on a hike more frequently and took that space and 
observe the beauty of the natural world and how it functions and how we should be, you know what I mean? We should be protecting it. And, and quite frankly, you know, I spend a couple hours every single morning. It's like my meditation. First thing I do is I go into the garden and I check on everything and I make sure everything's all right. Usually it takes about two hours. Um, it brings me such peace and such joy. And it's not just me. I think this would be the case for most people. And I think it would make people happier. I think it would make people nicer. Um, I think it would make people more conscious. And I think it would lead to change on an individual level that would then change the world. So yeah, I'm a huge proponent of um, spending time in nature. So my, my wife and I are coming up on three years in the Hudson Valley after about a decade in the absolute epicenter of the rat race of technology in San Francisco. Oh. Um, and so I couldn't agree more. I mean, the way that I describe it is that it, it turns the volume down on everything. I think family does that too, right? It turns the volume down on this. And I think that, you know, your point, the, the, the frustrating sort of cynical, but, you know, reasonable version of what you described is, you know, kind of beyond redemption. So I got to focus on the next generation, which I think a lot of people feel. But I think that even if you, uh, even holding aside that conclusion, there is a growing kind of conversation that, uh, that oh, that we are all kind of stuck in this. So even just today, I think, uh, Ben Hunt wrote this piece called The Anti-Anarchist Cookbook. And he basically makes the comparison between uh, pornography and the way that media is run right now. And instead of going after your pleasure center like pornography does, uh, it goes after your stress centers, right? And so he, he said, uh, in exactly the same way that your real world sex life will be completely messed up, if all you know about sex is what you get from watching Pornhub, so will your attitudes about real world citizenship be completely messed up if all you know about politics and culture is what you get from Recoil or HuffPo or ON or CNN or Fox. It's all of us. We're so immersed in the culture porn and politics porn that in inundates our dopamine-based economy, that half of us believe that the United States is a racist Nazi hellscape, and the other half believes that the United States is literally burning as Maoist mobs run amok. We're all porn addicts now, and social media platforms are our pornographers. And I think the, the reason that I wanted to kind of quote that is that it's, uh, it's not just you, right? There's a, a growing conversation, almost a recoiling from the 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 culture of outrage itself. And this is why I think your decision right now is so important or so interesting culturally, right? If the problem itself is outrage culture, is the only reasonable response to just disengage from outrage and to try to find it's to, to choose to avoid it right i mean on some level we, we rebel against this and i'm sure that you've wrestled with this because you're in it right you have been a leader in in screaming about these issues that are, are finally getting starting to get some of the respect that they deserve for so long but at the same time in a world where outrage just becomes manipulated becomes one more tool of the powerful is there any choice other than to actually opt out of it and say that's not the way forward. Right. No, this is exactly what's been um, consuming my my mind for a long time. And you, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, you really understand exactly what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And there is a strategic element to it as well. I mean, not only is it for my own sanity, but as you mentioned, um, it's, it's, it's not like I don't care. You know what I mean? I obviously care. It's not like sure. I'm giving up. I, you know, I'm, 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 you know, dedicated to, to trying to have an impact in a positive way um, on my surroundings, right? Um, it's a different approach, as you as you mentioned, and I'll be the first to admit that if you if you go back, right? If if someone actually went and read 
my po- if I went and read my posts from 2012 and to now, I would I would cringe probably at 50 percent of what I wrote from 2012 to 2017. I would probably cringe at 50 percent of it because I was in a lot of ways. I mean, not as bad <laughs> as some of these people, but but in a lot of ways, yeah, I was I was pushing outrage. Right, I felt that outrage, even though it was it was genuine and it, I think it was thoughtful outrage. It was outrage nonetheless. And I was trying to actually get people outraged because I figured if people got outraged, but for the right reasons, we could kind of change things. It doesn't work that way or it did not work that way. And that approach I, you know, sort of ditched a while ago. Um, But now, yeah, as you say, the problem that we have, I think, is, is we're not setting, if we're not setting the agenda of what we're talking about, then we've lost. And so by engaging on the controversy of the day, right, whether it's statues, um, you know, white supremacy, what, whatever is being promoted by the media or certain people and that everyone seems to need to talk about at this exact moment for some weird reason, um, by, 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 by push, putting myself in that debate that I didn't bring up to begin with, um, I'm being played. To some degree, you know, my energy is being is being redirected. It's being pushed in a manner that I don't necessarily want to be going in. But I felt obligated to some degree because because, as you say, my my hat's been in the ring for so many years, Mm -hmm. you know, and I do have stuff to say on all this stuff. You know, I feel obligated to to say something. But as I mentioned earlier, I I just don't want to do it anymore. I'm tired of it. You know, and so, you know, I, I feel like there's a lot of lessons that I can, that I can explain and even relate to the world through other means, you know, through, 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 through my day-to-day life. And quite frankly, you know, I want to spend more time with my kids. I want to spend more time being more resilient and growing more food and stuff like that than I do reading about politics. And so if, if that's the case, then I should probably, you know, make my work match that if, if that's what I want to be doing more of. So that's what I'm going to, going to be trying to do. And, you know, the other thing is this, you know, when I think back to the last, let's say 15 years, you know, what, what books or what, what articles inspired me most, what really connected with me most, what, what changed me the most as a person it wasn't some article about the Fed, you know, it wasn't some article about, you know, um, culture war or anything like, or politics or even geopolitics. It, it was, it was like, you know, reading books, let's say like, um, one of my favorites was the Bhagavad Gita, according to Gandhi, read that like 12 years ago. And it was really good because it was the Bhagavad Gita, but, but it was, you know, essentially narrated by, by Gandhi where he's, he's providing his own little, you know, thoughts on passages from the text. And it's just like, there were so many pearls of wisdom there that stuck with me forever. It really just like, it, it like flipped a switch in my brain that made me see the world differently forever. And in a, and in a better way, I want to be that guy. You know, I'm, I don't want to be Condi, obviously. I, I can't be, I'll never be that. But, but what I'm saying is I'd rather be more that, you know, than some, you know, loud mouth on Twitter. And so, you know, how do I get to be the more of the person I want to be than the person I currently am? Well, I got to work on it. 
Well, that is a, a an awesome place to end. Like I said, I feel really uh, privileged to be able to have this conversation on such an auspicious day. I know that, uh, I mean, just all it takes is reading through the the responses to your announcement posts on Twitter to see how much of an impact you and Liberty Brits Creek have had on people. So I know that all of your uh, all of your loyal readers and friends and fans are are excited to see what's next and uh, completely supportive of you in this this new mission. Oh yes, thanks, Nathaniel. It was, it was really great to be on your show, and I, anytime you want to do it in the future, would be happy to. All right, next time it's about gardening and uh, and hiking, though. <laughs> okay, if you're sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, we'll see. <laughs> I gotta bring some. I, I don't know if I can bring uh, enough gardening knowledge. It's uh, it's it's on the list for next. Okay. But yeah. Cool. All right, uh, Michael. Thank you so much for hanging out today. I really appreciate the time. The most profound section from Michael's final Liberty Blitzkrieg post read as follows. I want more philosophy in my life and less outrage. I want my words and my message to inspire rather than discourage. I want to promote resiliency and wisdom in the face of uncertainty and craziness. I want to increasingly focus on the things I love and the things I can control, rather than the things I despise and cannot easily influence. I think Michael's journey, as was probably clear from that interview, is reflective of so many more people than just him in this country right now and around the world. And I think that this decision to opt out of, to pull your ticket and say, I'm not going to fuel this outrage culture anymore, is a really powerful move. It's something that I think is very hard for a lot of us who feel like we are in the arena, right? In the political arena, the idea arena, the economic arena, to say that the only right thing to do is to withdraw. When the rules of the games mean that no one wins, the only thing you can do is choose to not play the game. I'm so appreciative to Michael for giving us the chance to have this conversation just after making such a huge announcement. And I'm excited, like I know so many others of you are as well, about what comes next. For now, guys, though, that is it for today's breakdown. I appreciate you listening. Like, rate, subscribe, leave me reviews, tweet it out, do all the things, share it. uh, And I appreciate it, of course. And until next time, guys, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.